0: Good morning, everybody. God bless you. Good to see you. Uh, please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We've come as far as John chapter 7. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. We need one right here, please. Pastor Steve and anyone else need a Bible? We need a couple more, I think. Where is it? I thought I saw another one. I don't know. Okay. Well, we've come as far as chapter 7, as we're going line by line, verse by verse, through the whole Bible. And uh, last, we left off, really, in that section of verse 60 in chapter 6. Uh, certainly very sobering, right? As Jesus Christ, um, very clearly, I, just love, just tons of grace and love that he was pouring out on the religious leaders, on the Jews. Specifically, um, you know, this idea that the, the term disciple, um, it means a learner, one that would follow him. We, we, we've talked about it uh, many times throughout scripture. The Bible really uses that term in three different ways. One of the ways is certainly a born again believer that we read about in John chapter 3, right? A Christian. A, uh, that's by definition a born again believer. Uh, The other two ways that we see, um, it was interesting, last uh, week I had someone after second service come up to me, actually was a professor in here, and I was using the example of, um, you know, when you're in a class, a lot of times you'll uh, have a teacher, and the teacher will, you know, give information out, handouts, things like that, and then you get a test, right? We've all been there, and you take a test, and they want to see what information you understood or but it doesn't mean you necessarily agreed with any of it. What it meant you could do was recite back or regurgitate back what you were uh, given or explained, yes? doesn't mean you necessarily agree with it. Um, and she came up to me afterwards, and she, she just kind of chuckled, and she said, that is so true. And I was like, oh, boy, what did I start? But, <laughs> but she was talking about that, how a lot of times it doesn't mean we're necessarily in agreement. Then there's the other aspect of discipleship in that term and how it can be used biblically, where it means one who's kind of following, they're going along, uh, but they're not necessarily there for the right motive. They're, They're a learner one who's learning and listening, but their heart isn't knit to it. They're kind of um, a passerby. They're there as long as it suits them, as long as there's interest in it, as long as it's cool and fun and hip, they're in. But then after that, you know, they kind of just go wayward, right? And that's really what we're talking about. It's it's certainly not the born-again experience that we read about in verse 60 that these disciples had left. There were thousands. I mean, he did, just did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You had up to 15,000 people, including women and children. And they saw them, one of the greatest miracles of all time, you know, especially in those days, to actually be filled with a full belly. Some of you have traveled to third world countries. You know, that still doesn't happen today. That still doesn't happen today. It doesn't happen today in our own cities, actually, in some areas. OK, you don't even need to go to third world country. But many of us on a Thanksgiving or certain holiday, we can push away from the table and we feel gluttoned. And that term in the Greek and the idea behind it is the bursting forth, coming forth, feeling that. And so he was describing and, uh, you know, what their motive of heart was. That these disciples, these thousands of people that had gathered for the miracles, had gathered for the shows, the motives were wrong. They had gathered from what they could get from Jesus, not who Jesus was, Messiah, God. And so many of them departed. He even then went to his own apostles and said, well, are you going to leave me too? And then in verse 70, we come to this area where he says, no, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? I just, I've read that passage so many times, and I just often stop and think about that. I mean, just really the grace of Jesus Christ, knowing that one of his own, one of the 12, would betray him. But even in spite of that, his desires that Judas would have made a choice to what? to not sin, to not do that. And just I think about how good he is to us when he gives us opportunity not to turn in those directions, but to choose the right, the righteous path, the right living, the right direction. And then if we read right into chapter 7 where we are today, verse 1, if we were looking at this passage, we would think this just comes next. But actually there are several months between Verse 70 and chapter 7, verse 1. Several months that go by. Chapter 7, verse 1 starts the last six months of Christ's three to three and a half year ministry on the earth before his crucifixion and ascension into heaven. And if we just approach this this morning, without actually knowing the background of the Jewish context here, again, you you keep hearing me say it's important to put that Jewish mind on to understand, because there's a lot of things that are going on. And if we aren't aware of the Jewish mindset, we miss a lot of what... Jesus Christ is trying to communicate, the Holy Spirit's trying to communicate through this, of what were the tensions, what were the different things that were pulling at Christ, what's the idea that his brothers are now getting involved, and they're saying, hey, why aren't you going to Jerusalem with us, why is this such a big deal, the timing of it, the events, the things that are happening, and so we need to kind of peel these things back, look at these things, and understand exactly what he was trying to communicate, especially after several months had just gone by where he felt, I imagined, is, you know, God, brokenhearted to see so many men and women and children walk away, even if it was because they had wrong motives. It still broke his heart. I have no doubt about that because he wanted to save every single soul. Amen. Will you bow your head and we're going to pray. Father, you are, as we've sung, you are an amazingly good, marvelous, loving God. Lord, we thank you for preserving your word and giving us your holy word that you've placed this before us. That, Lord, as we study these things, Lord, we get to learn more about you, more about your love, more about your truth, and and certainly, Lord, more about your character, falling madly and deeply in love with you. God, thank you that you have chosen to speak to us, Lord. I think of how long it had been this couple thousand years ago, Lord, uh, 400 years of silence before... uh, John the Baptist, Lord, and what that would be like. And now, God, we never have to have silence because we have your living and breathing word. What a time to be alive, Lord, such a time as this. Thank you, Jesus, for everything that you've given us. Thank you for your love and the the spirit of God that you've sealed us with here this morning and every day. Give us those eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. We pray anoint your word. Let it leap off our page into our heart and speak to us this morning, Lord. Speak to us, God. We are your servants, and we are here to hear what you have to say, Lord. And we ask this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, and God's people pray. Amen. Amen. If you turn your attention to, again, John chapter 7, verse 1, please, this morning. It says, After these things Jesus, again, several months had gone by, he walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, "Depart from here and go into Judea and that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, "My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot have you, or hate you, excuse me, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its works are evil. You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time is not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Now, maybe some of you are here this morning, and you're reading this for the very first time, and that's wonderful that you're together with us, and we're so thankful that you're opening the Word of God together. Maybe some of you have been through this passage a thousand times, a hundred times, or five. There's so much meat on this bone that we need to really um, take it almost verse by verse as we go through this, because there is so much going on. Um, And if we're not careful, we can skip over all the points that the Lord is trying to bring out to us. The first thing that he says is, after these things, which means, um, in, in the Greek, that word is meotauto, in the Greek, after. After this, after these things, God uses it as a separation. He does that in Revelation chapter 4, when he describes uh, the throne room of heaven, and what had happened, in, and what is happening in the church age, chapter 2 and 3 um, of, of Revelation. He says, meotauto, after these things, it's clearly a delineation or a mark. And God uses that to to tell us that it's begun. This is the last six months after these things. The new chapter, the rest of the chapter of John now, based on this section, this section that we're reading and going to be reading. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Now, you might remember he was raised in Galilee. That's to the north. He was raised in Nazareth, specifically. It says, for he did not want to walk in Judea. Judea had uh, Jerusalem located in it, which was the capital at that time and still is. And, and because the Jews, and when he's speaking of that, he's not just speaking of Jewish people, men and women and children, but he's specifically primarily talking about the Jewish leaders. But certainly it can encompass more than that. But he said that the Jews sought to kill him. It was predominantly the religious leaders that had sought to come kill him, many of those that were part of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember, the Pharisees make up the smaller amount, kind of like how we have two forms, you know, of a Republican or a Democrat. And every so many years we vote, obviously, and there's a minority and a majority in the House, a minority and a majority in the Senate. It's the same idea with the Sanhedrin. They had a majority, they had a minority. And so the Pharisees at this point were the minority, okay? And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, by the way, if you remember. So it says that they sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And this isn't important because the rest of what's going to transpire in chapter 7, it's really important and we understand that the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Sukkot um, was a feast for seven days, right? It was actually the last of the seven feasts that God had given in Scripture. Specifically speaking, it's the third, which requires the males, Jewish males, to make pilgrimage or Aliyah back to Jerusalem to come to the temple. And when they would gather for the first day, what they would do is they would give their tithe, their offering. And on the seventh day, they would give their tithes and offering. But even at this point, the Jews had even added on to the word of God, Deuteronomy 16, 16, which prescribed for the Jewish people at that time, obviously, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, right? But they even had added on to that. They created their own ceremony that was... um, basically tied into this, you might say, because if you remember back with Moses when he was in the wilderness and the people for 40 years, they had begun to grumble and complain about how they wanted to go back to the world, Egypt, as it was known, right? With the meat pots and all the things that were there. Specifically, they were thirsty. He's going to talk about that in chapter 7, verse 37. It's going to come up very uh, poignant. And they were thirsty. And so what did he do? He turned around and he said, the Lord God spoke to Moses as they had uh, communicated. And he says, I want you to go up to that rock. And what, is he, what do I want you to do? Speak to the rock. That's what God had commanded Moses to do, to speak to the rock. But if you remember, because of the grumblings and the different things that were happening, Moses was very upset with the people because of the complaining and everything. And a little anger management there lost a little bit of his anger. And so what did he do? He didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock. Not just once, but twice. Very important because of the imagery of what God had wanted to preserve through that Old Testament scripture. Because we know that Paul tells us in the New Testament that that rock was who? Christ. It was Christ Jesus. And so the imagery of there was that we were to, and when we see Messiah, we were to speak, we were to have relationship. He was already laying that foundation. We weren't to what? Strike him. It was not to be so. No, there would be one that would strike him, but that was for crucifixion. But that was not tied to the relationship aspect. That was what authored the relationship that you and I now have through the work on the cross, right? He was our substitution. But they had added on to the ceremony. And so what would happen is, is at the end of the seven days, they had an eighth day. And this eighth day, this day, they would take, um, and they would be at the Temple Mount. There would be, remember, please, uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you'd have normally a thousands, a few thousand in Jerusalem. You might have up to a million, or even some scholars have said possibly a million and a half people at that one time. Not a very large area. And they would gather all up near the Temple Mount and throughout the whole section and area. And what they would do is they would do this ceremonial sort of memorial because of what Moses had done and the people were remembering this, is they would go up and they would take a golden vessel. They would carry that golden vessel down and they would come to the pool. They would fill that up with water. They would then carry as a procession back up to the steps. They'd come back up to the Temple Mount area, well, the outer courts there, and you would see a silver um, basin that was gathered right in front there. And what they would do is they take this golden vessel. They would take the water that was just gathered. All the people that were there were witnessing this and they would pour the water water. Now, it's probably important I tell you that that silver basin had a hole in it, kind of like the size of a pencil, a puncture hole. And what it was to show is how God faithfully, again, preserved and protected his people. And after all, the Feast of Tabernacles was about that as well. And so they would pour out the water, would go down into from this golden vessel into this silver basin, and out of it would come a hole. And it was to memorialize or remember that rock in which supernaturally, miraculously, God made water come forth. This is exactly what had happened, and they had done this every single year, right? Now, why that's important is because what we're going to see, we won't get to verse 37 today, but it's going to set up why Jesus Christ says, I am the living water he's making the covenant connection for them. He's tying it together for them of who he is and what he's come to do. It's also significant that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles. You think about what what that feast signified, right? It, It was known as the Feast of Booths. It's known as Sukkot. Okay. It's the seventh, uh, the last feast that the Lord was uh, commanded the Jewish people to observe, and it was one of the three feasts which the Jews were to observe every year, as it says in Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16, you can look there in your Bibles if you'd like. It says, "Appear before the Lord your God in the place where He shall choose." And the importance of this feast, the Tabernacles, it can be seen many places in Scripture. Right. Uh, It's no coincidence, and I love how the Lord strings pearls just this Wednesday. We're in, as you know, midweek study. We're in the Old Testament. We're in Nehemiah. And we happen to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Second of three places that we see, specifically there's more than that, but um, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And in the celebration of that. I just draw our attention back to the first time that we might think about the significance of that. Um, Think about... The dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 2. The dedication of the temple by Solomon to God. That was during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when they dedicated the temple. What about Zerubbabel? Ezra chapter 3. When he comes back, right, to rebuild the temple. Obviously we know that Ezra will come shortly thereafter. And he's going to open the word and begin to teach the word. Again, during the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And then in the very place that we're going to read uh, next week in John 7, Jesus Christ, once again, as we're reading here, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Some have suggested that Jesus Christ may return, and it may be during the Feast of tabernacles, right? Because we start to see this. And it it uh, it was celebrated every year on the 15th of the month in the Hebrew month Tishri, right? Which would be our September-October time frame. Um, again, a lot of things important with that month as well. This feast begins five days after the day of Yom, day of, uh, Kifor or Kifor, atonement, right? So five days after Yom, Kifor, Kifor, the day of atonement, they would begin To celebrate this this harvest and the completion of the harvest. That's also what's brought up and part of the feast. Or at least traditionally was biblically. uh, Not so much anymore, but was biblically. um, The feast of tabernacles. It also celebrated God's continuing provisions uh, for them um, through the harvest. But also during the 40 years of their time in the wilderness. And again, it's one of the three feasts in which all the native born... Uh, Jewish males were commanded to participate in this feast. Um, you can read that um, in Exodus twenty-three sixteen, Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen or sixteen thirteen, and the significance of it also, as they would have done in Jesus' time, is many times as they were gathering for this, they would have built these little booths, and think of them as like tent-like structures, but with but see-through, with with different branches and different things, and and they would do that so that oral tradition they could teach this doctrine. They could teach this to the young Jewish children as they were gathering and also because of commandment to do this and remembrance of this. They would gather and they would build these structures and they would lay under them and you could see the stars and they would say, Honey, do you know why we do this? Do you know why we celebrate Sukkot? Do you know why we have the booths? Do you remember um, even Peter when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration? What did he want to do? He wanted to build a booth because he saw the glory of God and thought, oh, this is it. That's why many also think it's going to be his return on the Feast of Tabernacles again there. There's a lot that um, absolutely is tied up into this. But it's uh, for time's sake, it's, it's important to recognize that during this time, Israel would have been, specifically Jerusalem, would have been packed And so, as a good Jewish boy, his brothers are gathering. Now, let's be careful, you know, just to be accurate. They're his half-brothers because, after all, Joseph was not his biological father, right? Mary was, but Joseph was not. And again, this needs be for the way that God was going to have Jesus perfectly fulfill the law and at the same time not be born into the sin nature. It had to be that way. It's it's amazing how God figured all of that out in a way, uh, in spite of humanity, right? In spite of humanity. And so... We go on and we read here that it says he didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews of the Feast of Tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, go into Jerusalem, that your disciples also must see the works you are doing. Because part of what they would do on that eighth day as well is that there would be all the rabbis that would gather and all the teachers that would come out and they would begin to teach from the Temple Mount. And if you had disciples, the disciples would come out to hear what each one of those teachers were teaching. So his brothers are almost, you know how you are if you have brothers or sisters, sometimes you, I don't know what the right word is, but you pick on them a little bit, give them a little bit of a hard time. I think I'm being kind in the way i am saying that with my brothers and sister, but... Uh, so, at that, at those times, uh, you know, it's interesting here because we read the motive of their hearts is they don't actually believe that Jesus is God yet. And I, I've thought about that. Just think about that. You grew up in your homes, right? You, you'd like to think your family knows you. Mary said that she considered these things in her heart when the angel spoke to her about who Jesus is, the Son of God. And to think what it was like to grow up. Joseph, at this point, is, is dead. He's passed. He's with the Father in Heaven, I, I have no doubt. And, And at this point, he, you know, Jesus and his half brothers, they, they probably, it's not probably all what we thought about. You know, we think that Jesus growing up, he would be like, you know, I'm sure he was righteous and good and holy because he never broke the law, but... You know, I think we think it would be like great to live with Jesus at this point because we wouldn't have any chores. You know, it'd be like, great, you know, Jesus, can you just, you know, clean the house and before mom gets home and see see the mess we made? You know, miracle, 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 you know. Could you just, you know, (laughs) dinner, you know, mom's tired. She was out all day. You know, she's in the marketplace, Proverbs 31 woman, you know, she's coming home. Can't you just like take some you know, and make something, you know, some falafel, and, you know, can we just have a little bit of, uh, you know, lamb or something like this? Miracle, you know. I think we think that's how it would be, but in reality, other than when he was 12 years old, we told he went up to the temple and he began to teach. We really don't see anything supernatural from Jesus Christ before that point, so in fairness to the brothers, they're trying to reconcile this because they're like, hey, we... You smell just like we smell, huh? Like, we know you. We wrestled together here. You know, we grew up playing together. You know, you're. It's amazing how familiarity can breed presumptions. Familiarity can breed presumptions. And that's exactly what was happening with the religious leaders. And now it's being brought up here, too. And I think this is a warning because even with each other, we have to be careful of that. No, we don't want to judge each other. We don't. We, we're not. Let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit, right? So he goes on and he says, hey, why are you not going down to Jerusalem for this feast that God, you know, you know, has commanded us to go? We're going, why aren't you going? And they don't just stop there. They said, hey, and if you really are who you say you are, you should be there anyway, because you're a rabbi, you're a teacher. And oh, by the way, you can't do what you want to do in secret, because if you really are supposed to, you know, be God, you're supposed to be doing these public, you know, he just fed the 5,000, right? Like, they didn't know that. But you should be doing these great miracles in front of everybody. And so what they're doing is they're almost doing the same thing Satan tried to get them to do. Why don't you turn this bread into what? Or this rock into bread? Why don't you just do this? Why? This seems right for you. Why don't the apostles, why don't we just crown them king right now? Because they're not in the will of the father, right? And, and he's, he's, again, watch how Jesus handles us. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. That's where they're challenging Jesus. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, if you're really God, prove it, right? When I was growing up, we used to have a saying, if you're feeling froggy, you go ahead and leap. You know, I'm sure that's an upstate New York or downstate New York thing. I don't know if you guys have that in south central Pennsylvania. If you're feeling froggy, you go ahead and leap. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? That's a New York thing. I just broadened your uh, vocabulary. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And that's, again, heartbreaking. But the reality of what was going on. And I'm so glad it doesn't end here, aren't you? Jude. We have the book of Jude. We have the book of James. Jesus didn't give up on his brothers. He didn't give up on his sisters. He didn't want us to give up on any of our prodigals either. He doesn't want us to give up on our prodigals, right? I love this, uh, This because some of us have pe- family members that aren't saved right now, and you're, th- you're as close to them as possible, and you sit there and think to yourself, how can we be so close in the same house, and, you know, grew up in the same home, and how do I believe and you don't? How does this pop Keep praying. God's not done yet. God's not done, right, until that last breath. God's not done. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. He draws the reason. He says, look, you want me to go and declare this publicly and openly? He says, no it was specific. It was already prophesied. 483 years, wasn't it, in Daniel chapter 9. We've covered that together. Uh, If you weren't with us, you can listen to some of the teachings, uh, a few teachings back. We went through that on a Sunday morning to talk about how this needs be, and that began at the command of Nehemiah chapter 2 with the the declaration of Cyrus. 483 years specifically goes to 32 AD. And as a matter of fact, if you want to be very accurate and count the days, it comes right directly to April, um, I believe it's April 6th uh, when I did the math. So so he says, my time has not yet come. He's talking about the triumphal entry. He's talking when, when, when the day of visitation was to be made. Remember, as he's entering in the city and he's riding the foal of a donkey. And he says, if you would have only recognized your day of visitation, that's when that public part is going to happen. He says, even the rocks will cry out if you try to silence these people. My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. I like that. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Please notice this with me. This is incredibly important. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the reason that the world hates me is because I'm really revealing the motive and the truth of in the heart of a human being. He says, my, my words are true. And he says, I'm declaring to the Jewish people, the religious leaders, that the works, the things they're doing are motivated out of a poor motivation or evil. And I want you to think about your relationships and how often you just walk into a room. You didn't even have to say anything, but the countenance of the Lord is upon you. And immediately people give you that look that, you know, like, what did I do? What am I Where? You know, what's going on here? Like, you've done something wrong. But they recognize the Spirit of God upon you and in you. Or maybe you go up to somebody in love, maybe over lunch at the lunch break at work, and you're sitting down at the table, and they're hurting, and you're just trying to, you know, bear each other's burdens and meet them where they're at, and And you reveal something that they're doing Uh, again you've earned the right to invest in them and you've earned say hey listen you're living this way this probably is not a good idea this is what's causing all this heartache in your life and they look at you and all of a sudden they're like how dare you sometimes i think people forget that jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven that's real love friends that's not fire and brimstone we've been made to believe that in this generation the last 100 years But that's not biblically accurate. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven, but he did that because of real love. He didn't want anyone to go to hell and be eternally separated from him. That was his motive. It wasn't to hurt people's feelings or to put people down. He wanted to redirect them back to the truth, back to what leads to eternal life, which is belief in Jesus Christ alone. And they hear this message because hasn't he been telling them, look, if you look at me, Jesus is saying this, and you don't see the Father, do you know the Father? As a matter of fact, we're going to read here in a few minutes. You even read the scriptures, but you read the scriptures and you don't even recognize me in the scriptures. The scriptures bear witness of my authority, not only my authority, but God's authority, God the Father. We're going to read that in chapter 7 here in a little bit. I mean, just think about what he's saying here. And, and, and he's not doing this to try to berate them or browbeat them. This is real love. I, I love the way Jesus works. So he does, he does everything through love. He's motivated by love. But he doesn't compromise truth. Now, I was sharing at first service, and I want to make sure my, my heart and the way I'm saying this is right. We know that there are people living today in neighborhoods and cities and places around us that are not being obedient to the Word of God, Right? And we should probably look in the mirror before we go too far, yeah? So we we understand those things exist. The last thing that I really believe Jesus Christ wants us to do is go out and take a Bible like we would a baseball bat and wind up and try to take somebody's head off. I've done that. I've done that. With a righteous indignation, I've done that. I've thought, you know, this is so right. This is what we're to do. I'm I'm just being transparent before you. I've done that. And it doesn't end well. And it it grieves the Spirit of God because that's not how He wants me to do it love. He wants me to operate in love with truth. Now please understand me and hear me correctly. I'm in no way saying do we, for the sake of unity or love, compromise and not have truth or sometimes try to belittle the truth or be afraid to speak the truth because of, for a myriad of reasons. I'm not saying that nor to Jesus. As a matter of fact when the woman was caught in adultery I draw your attention to it again. He didn't take the stone and hit her with it he could have done that in the law. Yet it says he never broke the law. Why didn't he break the law by not stoning her to death? Because first, he knew the motivation of the religious leaders, number one. Number two, he knew her heart. Where was the man? They were to be brought together. That wasn't done right and handled correctly. And three, you can follow the letter of the law, but without the spirit of the law, the love, you will still eisegete. Or misinterpret the scriptures, which is exactly what these religious leaders were doing and many of the Jewish people were being taught to do. And he'll bring that back out when he talks about the healing again of this man and how it was work on a Shabbat, but yet you circumcise a child on the Shabbat, Shabbat, and that's not considered work. He's really trying to draw them to their own opinions and traditions, their own ideas that they have. And, and we all do that, don't we? We kind of create these compartments in our mind about what we think is right um, and what we think is not right based on things that affect us environmentally, our situations, our conditions, when right is right. Righteousness is right. It doesn't change based on our circumstances. But I do know that God is teaching me, and, 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 and I, I am thick sometimes, that I need to approach everything that I do through love. Because if I, if I don't do that, I will be guilty of the very same thing the religious leaders were guilty of. But that also means that I can't ignore when I see something not done right once I've earned the right to invest in that person's life. When I've earned the right to invest in that person's life, then I need to confront or bring out, hey, this is, this is not right. This is wrong. But I do it with a compassionate, loving heart, right? Right? And that's all of us in here. We all are to operate that way. And I'm sure the person we're talking to, no matter what you say, I'm I'm sure they're going to think at that moment when they're being challenged maybe, they're probably not going to think that you're trying to help them. As a matter of fact, they may think you're their enemy. Really? You love them, just like the perfect love of Christ. You really love them. Now, again, we're not to be on a sin hunt or a witch hunt or any of that kind of nonsense. I don't like that term, but I'm just using it because people use it. It's a sin hunt, I like to call it. And it's something that God's really just been showing me. And, and we want to be careful because he's not asking us to compromise. But I think of sin. Like I think of there's people that are practicing homosexuality, people that are practicing uh, lesbianism. There's people that are, are practicing um, um, uh, pornography, you know, pornea. There are people that are, are practicing adultery. There's people that are doing all these different things. And it's, it's so easy for me to go up to someone that's, that's practicing homosexuality and say, you're going to hell. I mean, that may be actually true, but I, I haven't earned the right to do that. And and I don't think Jesus wants me to handle that that way. I think Jesus would far rather have me come up and know and get to know that person, love on them, meet them where they're at, and then draw them away from that sin through an example of my life or through love and meeting them and saying, hey, look, this has to be really difficult. You, you know, you, you feel like you don't Fit in any other place, and my heart's breaking for you in that. Like my heart's breaking for you in that. But I want you to know, God has something far better than what what you're involved or what you're engaged in right now. And and I want you to know God's best. And I want you to be a part of God's best. Right? Do you see the difference there? And you can be dead honest and say, Yeah, you're going to go to, ha-. but where's the love? I I think we do it wrong. We miss it. We get it wrong when we do that. Or what if we go to that person and say, I love you so much. You're so close to me. I don't want to call out. Or when the Lord prompts me, that is, I don't want to say that because I'm going to hurt their feelings. Real love is to come alongside someone and sit down and say, no, this, my friend, this is wrong. And, And God wants better for you. I just think about how much healthier and... The Church would be how how much even the unbelievers that look upon the Christian that while they think many times we we believe we 're holier now we 're not we 're forgiven sinners that rejoice because we have a wonderful, glorious Savior, and we want them to know that as well, but there are going to be people that are going to call what you do and what I do they 're going to say that we're bigots. They're going to tell us that we're not tolerant. They're going to tell us that we're evil. Because we're calling out the evil works and saying this is wrong. Abortion, murdering babies is never going to be right. It's wrong. Did you just see the state, a recent state a day ago? They just, uh, two days ago I think it was, uh, they just passed it and I I can't remember if it was uh, where? Minnesota? And they, up because they want to codify it as a law because of the Supreme Court things. They literally just passed a law that said they, it was a 44 to 43 vote. And they passed it that says up to the point of conception, it's okay to murder a child. You see, the fr- friends, where does the line get drawn? Soon it won't be up to the point of conception. It'll be after conception. You think, no, that's not possible. Really? Study your history. What do we see happening in Europe right now with people that they would describe, they would call them the geriatric population? Where they no longer want to pay through health or insurances, Canada, other places, for procedures that would be considered routine procedures. And so what happens if that person doesn't get proper health care? Because they're older, they're in a line, but we should give it to somebody in their 30s or 40s or 20s because they're younger. What happens to that person? They die. Why don't we recognize that for what that is? That's another form of it, but on the other side. And we somehow placate that because they're, what, 90? What does that have to do with anything? I, 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 I'm, just, I'm trying to bring these out as examples to see that when we do that and we expose the world's evils they're going to label us terrorists and tyrants, infidels. But please be careful how we do that. Please be careful, be compassionate how we share that truth. Jesus was always compassionate in the way that he did that. So he goes on to say, and even with his brothers, right? He says, my time is not come, but your time is always. The world could not hate you, but it hates me because I testify the works of evil. We shouldn't be surprised either you go up to the feast, and I'm not going up to the feast. My time is not yet fully, con- you know, it's not time for my formal pronouncement as Messiah publicly. Again, that's going to be on the day of visitation. He said these things to them, and he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. So some sometime later, he he goes up, and and then the Jews sought him at the feast and said to him, where is he? And there was much complaining and among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews. How many of you here this morning thought wokeism or cancel culture is new? Did you read what I just read 2,000 years ago? They were murmuring. They were keeping it time because they didn't They were fearful for what the religious leaders, those who are in authority, were going to say. You know what we call that, friends? Censorship. That's censorship. And we see it right here in our scripture. It's good to have debate. Debate is good. Apologetics is good. To be able to understand other people's viewpoints so you can bring them from where they are to where your position is and vice versa. These are good things to have. But not so here. No one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews, for the fear of the Jewish leaders, right? How many of you thought it was just Roman oppression? It wasn't just Roman oppression. You know, woke culture, it's it's, it's really not new. Now, about the middle of the feast... So about three and a half days or three or four days into the seven-day feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Again, this was pretty common. He would go to the courtyard; Disciples would be looking for their teachers up there. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know the letters having never studied? Because <laughs> he wrote the Bible, right? He inspired it. I mean, I think we all want to go, wait a minute, I know that answer. It's obvious and simple and true. He wrote the Bible. Um, but where do we find that in scripture, right? Some of you are thinking about 2 Timothy three 16, right? We know that God wrote the Bible. Uh, it's God breathed, but do you know what the Lord was showing me when I was, re- when I was reading this passage, again, it's confirmation. I was talking about it earlier. Here he is, he's reading the word of God and they're marveling. You know, this guy didn't go to seminary. He doesn't have a doctorate degree. He doesn't even have a, you know, what they would consider a high school education in our days. He didn't have any of that. He was a carpenter's son. He was a tradesman. He didn't have any formal education outside of what we would say the normal academy. And they're marveling because how can he handle the word of God like that? You know what I'm marveling about is that as he was speaking and speaking the truth of his word, the irony that they didn't recognize Jesus in his own word. That's what I marvel at. When I read the word of God, every word be true. And I know that man be a liar. And when I read these things, it draws me into relationship. It draws me into tightness and closeness with Jesus Christ. I I learn more about who Jesus is, who Messiah is, who my love is. And I can recognize the things he does or the things he doesn't do a lot by the word of God. Because the word of God never contradicts itself. Nor would Jesus ever do anything that would contradict the word of God. So I, I, I have some... I have some, some, I guess, axioms you can say here that I can use. But, but to me, it was an irony that these religious leaders who from their youth studied Torah. They were the experts in all of Israel. These, the, these are the experts. They're on the Temple Mount. You know they're there. That's where the religious leaders gathered. And they didn't even recognize God in his own writings. When they read it, they didn't even look up and say... You're the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This was written about in Isaiah. This is Psalm 22. You're the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. You know what I mean? On and on and on. They didn't recognize that you're the autobiography of the triune God. You're the autobiography of the triune God. The Bible is the autobiography of the biography of the triune God. I just can't help but thinking about that. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine, you notice he doesn't say my philosophy, he's not interested in man's wisdom, is not mine, but is he who sent me. Who's he speaking of? The father, right? Look at verse 17. Really important. I love this. This is a, this is a, a litmus test or a R-square formula. For those that are mathematicians in here or done statistics, here's your R-squared. You, you know what I'm talking about? Those that want a pr- your proof, your proof text. How do I know That the Word of God is trustworthy and true. You ever wondered that? The Bible says it right here in chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know. That word is in the Greek, konosko. That means know from experience. Not innate knowledge. Not something that can't be witnessed. But something that they would know by through experience because of what happened. I pray to God. God, should I move? God, should I go? God, should I stay? What should I do, Lord? The Lord gives me a scripture. I then obeyed the scripture. Because I obeyed scripture, what is supposed to come to fruition comes to fruition. By experience, I witness that whole aspect of how God works because the primary way that God speaks today is what? Through his word. We because the time of the prophets, right? When you think of John the Baptist and they were the mouthpieces of God, we have the full counsel of God today. Not to say that the Holy Spirit won't give us word, but but we confirm it or Test the spirits to make sure it doesn't contradict scripture. But we can conosco in these things. He's saying, taste, test. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Test these things in scripture and watch. Because man's a liar and God's true. And the word of God is true. He says that you can conosco concerning the doctrine, the authority of the scripture. Whether it's from a God or whether I speak on my own authority. He says the word of God will bear that test out. Because if it be true, and what I'm saying is Jesus, that Jesus is saying this, he says, then these things needs be, and they will come to fulfillment of the prophecies as we've seen in Scripture. And before we go too far, pause right here. What do I mean by that? Simple, simple truth. How many of you have read Psalm 69? Some of you in here, maybe different points in your life. Hold your finger here right on verse 17. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69, please. Have you ever read this passage? It's a messianic psalm. Have you ever read this passage in scripture where it says in verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers. Remember in prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. What did just we read? What did we just read in chapter 7? Do you remember what we just read back in chapter 7 when it says his brothers, in verse 5, for even his brothers did not what? Believe him. Was this not prophesied? In the Psalms, how many, you know, thousand years earlier? 900 years earlier? He says, I've become, and, and just so we, we don't think, oh, well, that could be, oh, no, no. Look how specific he is. I've become a stranger to my brothers an alien to my mother's children. Why my mother's children? Why not Joseph's children? Because he's not Joseph's biological son. He's Mary's. My mother's children, half brothers, but in common with his mother, not his father, because he's not of Joseph. How many of us read this the first time? Well, what does that mean? Okay, you know, just kept going, right? All right. But this is what I mean when it says, he's, he, this is what he's saying to them, he says the, to the religious leaders, he says, look, the whole Word of God bears witness of me. The Word of God, he's saying, look, test the Word of God, go and read the Word of God. And you'll see that it bears witness. It testifies of who I am. I'm not of my own authority. God the Father, He sent me. And the Scriptures bear witness to me. And if you had known the Scriptures, you would have known me, Jesus. That's what He's saying here. Does that not blow your minds? It blows my mind that, I mean, 900 years ago, one verse that then came fulfilled in chapter 7, 900 years later, I entered in like 30, you know, so that you and I can just look at that and our minds are blown. Lord, how did you know? How did you do this? How did you arrange all of this? And then he goes in and he's saying in verse 17 again, if anyone wills to know his will, he shall know Canosco concerning that. This isn't a blind faith. You can know. You can know through experience. Test the Lord. Test the Lord and see that he's good. Not in a mean or mo- uh, ill motive way. But test the word of God. Pray. Should I take another job? Should I, should, young people, should I get married? Should I, should I marry this guy? Should I marry this girl? Should I do this? Should I do that? Whatever God is showing you, test the word of God. Bring it before the Lord. Get confirmation. So many people are walking around giving their opinions on how to do it God's way. Read the Bible. Be Bereans. I don't, don't, don't trust me. Right? I'm, I'm a man standing up here reading. Don't trust me. You have the Bible. You be Bereans. You go search the scriptures to find out if these things indeed be true. Right? Just think about the times we're living. You have that ability. Our forefathers, men and women died so that you and I could have a Bible in our hands so that we could test the Word of God and know these things to be true so that we don't fall into the uh, uh, censorship or the wokeism or the, the nonsense that's going on today that's trying to divide people Instead of unify people in Jesus Christ. Whether it's from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Look, verse 18. For he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, the Father is true. Look at your Bible. And no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? It seems, he's like, throws that in there, right? He's saying you knew that the law was true. But you didn't obey that. This, the, law, the word of God speaks of me, and that you don't obey either. You're rejecting Jesus. You're rejecting me too. The people answered and said, You have a demon. Isn't this interesting? What did he do? He called them right on the carpet, if you will. He called them right onto it. Why do you seek to kill me? This is the issue we have here. You want to kill me. And why do you, and they're like, no, we didn't. You ever, ever talk to somebody you kind of know where their motive is or where they're, no, I didn't. You, yeah. Really, because everything else experientially kind of points to that. Like you got in line, You know, I'm not getting a turkey sandwich. You ordered turkey, you got the receipt for it. No, I didn't, I was ham. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. But, but really, we, we all, we've been there. We've seen these kind of things. Why do you seek to kill me? What is he talking about? Remember when they wanted to kill him? Is was when he did that miracle on the Sabbath, healing that man for, thir- you know, that had been in, uh, uh, not able to walk for 38 years due to, you know, sin, the sin issue. But as so the people answered, you have a demon. They try to turn it around. Who is seeking to kill you? He's out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus What was he doing? You can't fool God. He's revealing their hearts and what they were trying to deny. When God speaks in our hearts that way, we ought to listen. Even if we don't see it, he's showing it to us. Because we can't fool God. Verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, the healing of that man at that pool of Bethesda. And you all marvel." Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. He's talking about Abraham because it came before Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, in other words, doing a circumcision on the eighth day to a baby, it's work, right? So that the law of Moses should not be broken, you're angry with me. What is he saying? If you've never done, if you're a doctor, you've done circumcision, you know it's work right? And the same thing, what Jesus was saying is that same kind of work. I looked at a man that was in need of healing, and I told him, stand up, take up your bed, and walk. How is this any different? The hypocrisy here. And for that, you want to kill me? Are you guys not getting it? That's what he's saying to the religious. Are you guys not getting this? The real problem here? I'm revealing your hearts. You don't want to draw men and women to God. You want to draw men and women to yourselves. You, you, you want your high places, your mighty places. Because I made a man completely well on the Shabbat. Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. If, if you walk out of here today, we're going to close. I'm going to have the musicians come forward. If, if you walk out of here today and, and you've got nothing... <laughs> I I don't believe that's possible. But if you got nothing from the whole teaching here this morning, please take verse 24. This, This is very, very important. Underline it, circle it. Do not judge according to the appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. That will protect us and keep us from making false accusation, false judgment, and looking at things with human eyes. Joshua told us the same thing in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Do not be dismayed. That word dismayed in the Hebrew is looking at things and seeing them from a temporal or human perspective. And he's telling us now, when we look at each other or when we look at things in the world, don't look at them with a temporal perspective. Look at them with the eternal. Look at them through Jesus' eyes. If we do that, we will be faithful vessels to be the hands and feet of God. And we won't get it wrong. Because God will redirect us and his word will confirm it. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able. We'll pray. We'll pick up um, in verse 25 next week, as the Lord should lead us, if He should tarry. Father, these words that you've given us, oh my Lord. I, I think of Mary when she said she just wanted to ponder and she just wanted to. Think on these things. Lord, there's so much here for all of us. Lord, to even go back and listen over and over again and read over and over again. Lord, you always know the motive of the heart. Lord God, I pray we have pure motives. I pray we lay down all of the things that are are vying for our attention, Lord, that, that can cause us to not see things as you see them, Jesus. We're your image bearers, Lord. We're your ambassadors. Jesus, we need to have your heart. Give us your heart, Lord. Conform us, completely conform us. Do that work of sanctification that you've begun, Lord. We, we need it. We desire it. Lord, I can't do it of myself. None of us can. But, Lord, your word does that work. And you started here this morning. You've been um, faithfully through your word changing hearts and minds for thousands of years, Lord. I pray, God, and I'm expecting for what you're going to continue to do in the days while you should tarry. Lord, thank you, Jesus Christ. We pray here and receive our worship. May we worship you in spirit and truth. May we worship you with all of the angels of heaven. We just thank you. In your mighty name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you head out, I want to share one thing. I shared it with First Service. I, um, I want to be clear. You know, in no way am, am I saying that the scriptures ever... Ask anyone to compromise when it comes to sin. I just want to make sure we're hearing the same thing. The scriptures never ask us to compromise. God, Jesus always asks us to move forward with truth and love. We don't compromise one for the other, okay? But it's another thing that the Lord is doing in my heart is to comprehend grace. Grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. So just uh, as the Lord is doing that work in my heart, I pray he's doing that work in all of our hearts. So we approach people and situations with the grace of Jesus Christ without compromise, but with a holiness and a love that only Jesus can give us and only we can give to others. God bless you guys. I love you. Have a beautiful day in Christ Jesus.